starter verses taken from Leviticus 19 to 27 through 8 and 20 to 22 through 26. Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. Keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall therefore keep all of my statutes and all of my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to to live may not vomit you out. And you shall not walk in the customs of the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore I detested them. But I have said to you, you shall inherit their land, and I will give it to you to possess, a land flowing with milk and honey. I am the Lord your God, who has separated you from the peoples. You shall therefore separate the clean beast from the unclean, and the unclean bird from the clean. You shall not make yourselves detestable by beast or by bird or by anything with which ground calls, which I have set apart for you to hold unclean. You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the people that you should be mine. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. Welcome to Grace and Peace Church. Thank you so much for braving the weather this morning. It is going to get really cold, and so it is important that we talk about politics today so that it heats us up on the inside, that we may burn our neighbor down with the uh, the sun of a thousand, uh, the heat of a thousand suns. So that's what it'll go for. No. Um, so what has been the point the past three weeks? Why have I been talking about politics these past three weeks? We'll continue this week and next week. It has not been to get you to vote for whoever I think is better than the other person, nor is it to show you that somehow both sides are like uh, morally equal. Rather, what I've been trying to do is poke at your idols. You know, if you've been frustrated with me, a little upset, or you're like, why in the world would he say that? If maybe you assume that I'm on the other side of the political aisle, and then you attributed to me a list of anathemas after my name, you are proving my point. My goal is to test your heart allegiance. To say, maybe your heart allegiance may be compromised between the kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. My goal is to show that every one of us, that we may be putting our trust in politics, and that trust is a misplaced hope, and it's confusing the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And that confusion is likely to lead to disappointment, disenfranchisement, and dehumanization of other people. Our willingness to call the other side names to misrepresent their views, they question the legitimacy of a brother or sister's faith based on their vote is merely human, earthly, political tribalism showing that we may be rendering unto Caesar what belongs to God. Remember, your candidate, your candidate didn't walk on water. Your candidate didn't feed 5,000. Your candidate didn't raise a dead girl from the grave. He didn't die for your sins. Your candidate didn't raise, rise again to give you new life with him. Your candidate didn't do that. So what we're trying to do is reorient your heart so that the habits of your heart and your love will be direct, placed in the right direction these next few weeks so that you may love God, love neighbor, 
and that you may not revile your political enemies. I'm also trying to help you navigate this election season so that a holiday season may be okay and that you may reflect in the holiday season kindness, mercy, and love in order that the only thing that is carved on Thanksgiving Day is your Thanksgiving turkey and not your uncle. Which brings me to our topic today. How can I vote wisely? Or to put it a different way, how do I love my political neighbor with my vote? I grew up as a child in the 80s and 90s, and one of my favorite movies is Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, where he teams up with his father, Sean Connery, and it is awesome. You find out that Indiana is really the name of the dog. It's kind of fun. In the climactic scenes, though, Indiana Jones in the Last Crusade, the title character, he's forced into daring tasks to recover the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is the cup that Jesus used in, during the Last Supper, and it is thought that the user will, ha- the user who drinks from it will have eternal life. So Indiana is forced into doing these daring things to recover the Grail because an antagonist has shot his father, and the Grail is the only way to save him. So two people want the Grail: one for selfish motives, the antagonist, and the other for the life of his father. Indiana Jones deftly yet bravely survives all the past, followed behind him by the antagonist with a gun. But there is one final challenge, and they have to find the grail amongst all these other cups that are lining the walls. Some are absolutely shining, beautiful, and gold, and some are jewel-encrusted. And the antagonist goes first, thinking highly of his wisdom and the possibility of his own kingdom to come. And what does he do? He steps forward, and the guard says, the knight that is there, he says, choose wisely, as the true grail will give you life. The false grail will take it from you. And you can almost hear the dun dun And you know what's coming, okay? And so he gets there, and the antagonist grabs this beautiful gold chalice with gems encrusted on it. He dips it into the water. He drinks it. And what happens? He withers away, it turns into dust and ashes, and he's blown away. And the guard looks at Indiana Jones and he says, He chose. Ooh. And so every time my kids make a mistake, I always go, He chose. They love it. Anyway, and so he was choosing for himself the antagonist, making Jesus into the king of his imagination to serve him. But then Indiana Jones steps forward, looks at all the cups, and finds one raggedy, old, tarnished cup. And he says this in his reasoning. This is the cup of a carpenter. The carpenter's role is more of a servant. He knew the story of Jesus' life. He knew that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And so Indiana Jones, when he looks at that, he is choosing for his father, knowing the story of the true king, and so he could see with eyes of wisdom what the antagonist could not see. And what do we need today? We need to be able to see how to choose wisely, don't we? How to make right decisions. And so, in this time of looking for a political candidate, We may mistakenly ask a political candidate to give us life, to make our wildest dreams come true. But that's drinking from a false grail. Choosing a candidate. Heck, anything other than Jesus to give you life 
the life you've always wanted, it will only take life from you. If you say, if I don't have this, then I am nothing, you are just making an idol for yourself, including out of our political candidate, our jobs, romances, whatever it may be. All false cups will lead to death. Only Jesus leads to life. Only loving God and loving neighbor will lead to flourishing. Idolizing a political party will lead to spiritual famine. Christians, Christians, you should know that no political platform can give you life. Only Jesus can do that. All other candidates will only take life from you, leaving you isolated and frustrated. Christians, you should know that no party can rehumanize this dehumanized world. Only the truest image bearer, the true God-man, who is both human and divine in one person, can do that. As Christians, we should know that no donkey, no elephant can bring justice to this unjust world. Only the lamb who was unjustly slain to make us just can do that for us. The question is now, as we come to this, is how do we vote then? What considerations should we take into account? And the book of Leviticus helps us understand that. It forms the shape of the life of the people ethically, religiously, and, and uh, also politically of how they are to live their lives with other people. In response, how are they to do this in response to God's gracious love and His presence with them? And so this holy life is lived not in isolation from other people. No, holiness, true separateness, is actually lived amongst other people, where other people can kind of see your life and see this life and realize, well, that's a little weird. Those are different people kind of getting together, different economic brackets, different ages getting together, and they still have unity. That's strange. And that's holiness. How we treat each other. And so this holiness, be holy as I am holy, is to reflect God's heart. Holiness is a countercultural way of living for the sake of neighbor. God places his people in the middle of the known world so that by uh, them following his laws and the just treatment of others, the nations will see that Israel is a paradigm for living, the way life was truly meant to be. The Proverbs tell us this. The beginning of knowledge, or the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge meaning that the basis for true wisdom is a covenantal relationship with God initiated by Him and lived out for the sake of your neighbor. Within these verses, we see how to respond. Ultimately, it is revealed to us that this is the, here's the main point. Our vote is for our neighbor. Our vote is for our neighbor. God's people are to be holy in their relationships and amongst and toward others. Holiness is not an end in, 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 in itself, but it is for others. It is for a world following, falling deeper into despair, divisiveness, and self-destruction. If we are to love our neighbor with our vote, we need to answer three questions. This applies so, for so many more things in our age as well. Here's the three questions. What is my duty? What is the goal? And who are we? What is my duty? What is the goal? And who are we? And this text will help us with this. So you should probably know that answering these three questions must be held in tension with one another. The answers must 
kind of dance with one another. It isn't reserved just for voting either. It isn't, it's a lot like making good improv. Have you ever done improvisational comedy or seen this in theater or did improvisational dance or anything like that? Okay? What you need to do is you need to hold certain things in tension. You need to hold the scene, the stage, the props that you have, the story that you're holding. In order to have good improv, you have to remember these things, know your character, know the scene and the setting, and wisely keep those things in tension so that it fits the story. So let's go. Let's try a little improv. And let's answer this first question. What is my duty? Okay. Uh, don't be an eight-year-old boy. I can hear my son laughing at me right now. What is my duty? And that is principle or deontological ethics. If you're really smart and you like reading that, go ahead. Um, you can join me and we can have coffee and we can talk about ethics sometime. But God makes it clear for the people here. In order to love God and your neighbor, you follow the statutes of God. We see that if you're going to be my people, if you're going to be holy, you have to follow these rules. It's the written law. It's the Ten Commandments. The moral law of God serves as the floor or the baseline for the people. And the space in between, between the floor and the ceiling, is the application. And so the, the application of the baseline. And so between floor and ceiling, we have the space to be holy. That is where he's putting us. The moral law of God is that baseline. It's the bare minimum. Chapter 19 starts off with a be holy as I am holy. Then it is followed by this is how you revere your father and mother. This is God's authority structure. Then keeping the Sabbath, God's design for worship and work. Then a prohibition against idols. Why? Because God says, I am the Lord your God. They constrain themselves to the law of God and follow his statutes. As one biblical scholar says, the law of God is the transcription of the heart of Yahweh. And so therefore, if there was an EKG on the heart of God's people, it would be to the rhythm of God's law. Be holy isn't just the minimum command, but it is the space between floor and ceiling, the application of the commands of the law. You see, to have good improv, to vote to love your neighbor in this time, you need to know the constraints. What is the floor? You need to know the baseline of the story, the limits of the action, and that is held out in the basic laws of God, the moral law. The modern person, though, is set, uh, their baseline is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, the desire for freedom, freedom from constraints. Freedom from responsibility. But in the end, if you really to boil it down, you and I and everybody else in this world, we're constrained by our pocketbook. Especially if you're a millennial paying back student loans, you know exactly what it means to be constrained by your bank account. You're also, some of us are constrained by their conscience. Some of us are constrained by their reputation, their Instagram feed, their dating profile. You see, we can only have true human freedom if we constrain ourselves to that which makes us truly free, to that which makes us truly human. Let me put it this way. A fish can only truly be free if they constrain themselves to water. A musician can only be truly free if the musician constrains himself to practice. 
I can only be truly free in my marriage if I constrain myself to my wife and constrain myself every time I see a brand new bike that shows up in my in my uh, Facebook feed saying, you need this brand new customized carbon fiber bike with tram e-cap. Yes, I do need that, but I love my wife. So I constrain myself for the love of my wife. You see, in order to be free, you need to constrain yourself. Love anything or anyone and you will be constrained. It's just natural. The way we were made, love God and love neighbor, then you will be constrained to the law of God for their good. That's our duty. Some people have been really upset with others, though, within Christianity nowadays, feeling like they have broken God's law. They say things like, your vote doesn't really accord with the biblical worldview. And then these people who are holding out the biblical worldview nowadays will go on to berate, scold, shame, and humiliate those who don't agree with their understanding of a biblical worldview. Now, they have a legitimate argument. They have a legitimate argument, and we should listen to them. But let me put it this way. If your worldview enables you to be a jerk to others, then you're not following a biblical worldview that leads to holiness. You're following a post-enlightenment tribalistic trope that leads to moralistic self-righteousness. What good is a biblical worldview if it doesn't lead you to love of God and love of neighbor? Only true, humble love of God and neighbor constrained by the gracious, merciful love of God for us while we were yet sinners will empower us to be unadulterated in our love of God, uninhibited in our love for neighbors, including our political enemies, and allow us to hold inextinguishable hope on November 3rd, regardless of the outcome of the election. Because as a Christian, you're not constrained by love of a political party. You're constrained by the love of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.14. So what's the duty of a Christian? Love God, love neighbor. That's the way Jesus boils down the entire Old Testament in Matthew 22, 37-39. When you vote, love God, love neighbor. Vote for love of God, love of neighbor by following the constraining law of love in the person of Christ. The duty of a Christian is to reflect the moral holiness of God, including when we vote. But what's the goal, then? What's the goal? Do we need to hold this intention? What is the goal? Answers the question for the ethicist who thinks who wants to know more about the utilitarian or consequential ethics of our actions. And so if you're in school in an undergrad program, you're suddenly in your junior year, this is 300 level ethics. What it means is following the letter of the laws, the floor, the basic duties, and the ceiling without definite end into application of it is what is the goal. How do we get to the ceiling? The command to be holy is applied in a myriad of ways throughout the book of Leviticus. If the law is, do not murder, or all the way down to, do not covet, there's a ceiling to it. There's something that we need to aim for. And verses 9 through 17 in chapter 19 uh, kind of unpack that. And what does it unpack? What is the goal? The goal of God's people is to seek flourishing, the true life of others, by doing what? Not Harvesting all your grapes. Leave the edges so that the poor may harvest. By not robbing people, 
by exercising justice between correctly between poor and rich. Not treating one side better than the other. Not favoring uh, one group over the other. By not hating your brother. And then they go in even further into sexual immorality. We live sexually chaste lives for the sake of flourishing in the entirety of the world. The goal then is to express the heart of God into all areas at all times. And this looks different given the situation, the stage that we're on. What props do we have? What are the other actors on the stage? And that'll change the way maybe we communicate, the way we live our lives, but we know the baseline. It may even change, given, like, we might vote for one person four years ago and another person this year. It may change. Jesus says, uh, and let me put it this way, Jesus says, if a man owns an ox, for instance, and that ox falls into a pit on the Sabbath day, right? So you got you got a problem here. He's putting you into a dilemma, okay? If he falls into the ox on the Sabbath day, if he was to take him out, it would make him unclean, right? If he was to rescue him. And then, therefore, he couldn't worship. Jesus then asked a rhetorical question of everybody. Will he not rescue this ox? To which everybody says, yes, rescue the ox. Why? Because the life of the ox is more important than the letter of the law. In fact, the way to actually fulfill the law was to preserve the life and, therefore, make yourself ceremonially unclean. which is interesting. So, this goal kind of changes a little bit. The allegiance isn't, our allegiance isn't to the letter of the law, but to the spirit of the law, which we find in Christ. For instance, Rahab is commended for what? Lying to the state. Now, don't hear what I'm going to say. I am not promoting that you lie about your taxes. So, don't hear what I'm not saying, okay? This is a real biblical situation. I'm just describing something. Do not extrapolate some kind of strange application from that, okay? That's bad reading. Maybe I shouldn't have even given this example. But anyway, she lies to the state by hiding Hebrew spies. Why? Because her allegiance is to Yahweh, the living God. So, therefore, what is she going to do? She is going to preserve life. Therefore, following God will look differently, given, different given the stage and the props that we find ourselves. And that then will show us our goal. The goal of the Christian, then, is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. It is done by promoting life and the good of others, even if they don't vote the same way you do. It means that you may be able to find common ground with those on the other side of the political aisle, even to the glory of God. But often our impulse isn't for the good of others, is it? And the glory of God. Rather, our goal is for ourselves at times. And nowhere is this better encapsulated the feelings and instincts of this world than it was in Justice Kennedy's Planned Parenthood versus Casey opinion, which could have overturned Roe v. Wade. He wrote this At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own exi- concept of existence, of meaning of the universe in the mystery of life, close quote. You see, this version, and the version in the trope that everyone in our world tends to listen to and live for, existence is for my own self and not for my neighbor. It's not for the glory of God and enjoying Him. 
our common impulse is to define the world as it satisfies the goals of who? Me. Therefore, the goal can always move. The goalposts are always changing to the advantages of the self. We will reason according to whatever satisfies us. And since you know what happens in the world, our ethics are always changing. Our goalposts are always moving. It's like Calvin and Hobbes, and you've got Calvin Ball going on, and what happens? The rules are made up all the time. And so you need to hold in attention to what is the duty and what is the goal because we can change at any time. If your goal is for only yourself and you don't keep in mind the floor or the duty, you will have no anchor or baseline in this world. You have no floor to ground you. You will only have yourself and be made a slave to your own demise. It's very much like the movie Wall-E. Humanity is left to their own devices and what happens to the world. It is filled with junk and trash so that it is so completely uninhabitable. Why? Because our consumeristic impulse to satisfy ourselves and live for the glory of me has overcome everything. And it, what is left is this little robot, Wally, who sits there and cleans up the junk. Nobody's ever coming back to Earth. There's so much junk that one soul, artificial intelligence, Wally, who is more human than any of the humans in the rest of the story, it, it isn't going to happen. But anyway, he meets Eve, and then he ends up being beamed up to the by and large spaceship where humans reside on these little uh, propelled a hovercraft that bring them from one amusement to another. And what has happened to humanity that is self-serving and consumeristic to no end, they live in front of a screen, giving them DoorDash whenever they want, and then bringing them from one Netflix show to the Amazon Prime show on the Hulu continuously. Never noticing anybody else becoming very unhealthy in their ways. And it is this downward spiral of humanity, of consumerism, life for its own self to the end. If that is your life, if that is your goal, that is what Disney says is going to happen to you. This is Disney. That isn't even the Bible. This Disney is saying this is what is going to be the end of consumerism. And if Disney says that maybe, maybe we should consider the life of consumerism and living, uh, uh, you know, to our own goal. There's truth in Disney. That is weird. Anyway, keep going. Keep getting back to this. Okay. You see, they have whatever they want. That's the result. And this little robot comes and interrupts them and starts talking to them and serving them. And what do they see? They start speaking and serving others. And he does this, as the robot does this, people are awakened to the true purpose of living, which is what? Service to others. That they are to live for one another and not just for the self. In doing so, he reveals the danger of living for self. And he also reveals the beauty of living for others. The goal of your vote, then, it's to love God and love neighbor. The goal is for the flourishing of others. Make it about yourself, then you'll be liable to use and accuse others. Make it for the glory of God and for neighbor, then you will realize that your vote isn't ultimate, and you can work for others for the common good. The goal of your vote is to promote the life of your neighbor. Vote is to promote 
life from womb to tomb. Votes promote flourishing economically, domestically. That's what we vote for. That's the goal. But lastly, we need to hold that intention with who we are, which is for you Aristotelian scholars out there, virtue ethics. Okay? When it comes to answering this question, we need to know that God as creator and redeemer is the one who is free to define us. And from our identity flows our character. The fundamentally changed heart in the hands of God will, will pour forth a character that reflects God's love. But if from the heart pours manipulation, then the deepest love of that heart is power. If from that heart comes fear, then the deepest love of that heart is security. If from that heart comes demanding performance, then that heart loves reputation. So for good improv, we need to answer the character. We need to answer the question: What character am I playing? Is it more about? It, it is more when we vote about character of who we are, and who we want our society to be rather than any uh, intention with all these other things. We need to realize character matters. Remember your identity is formed and shaped by the relationships you make. What are the primary relationships you have? For some of you, you're a mother, you're a father, you're a brother, you're a sister, you're a roommate. You're an employee, employer. You're a citizen. You have all these relationships that form and shape us. So then whatever the priority of that relationship is going to determine your identity. These relationships form the basis of our story, the basis of our identity. The most quintessential thing about you will form the virtues or character of what you live for. In our modern age, our relationship with technology has been the primary relationship for a lot of us, and it forms and shapes us and forms our life. We get more, many of us, we spend more time in front of YouTube, and that forms and shapes us more than books, photo albums of our family, and our church family. I dare to say that we are more discipled by social media than we are by God's Word. Social media will lead you to have an uncertain footing in the world because it'll shape you to earn your identity. Only Christianity tells you that your identity is given for you and is earned for you by Jesus Christ. And from that identity comes your character or virtue. If you're uncertain about your identity and who you are, we will always give ourselves to any group that makes us feel wanted. In our insecurity, we will compromise to be part of whatever or whoever affirms my sense of self. For the modern person who says I have no story except the story I chose when I had no story, you will always live trying to make yourself something or somebody. So without the grounding of character and virtue, we are liable to self-idolizing narcissism. What does this mean? It means that the way we vote and interact with the world is just as important as who we vote for. It means that when you vote, you vote for a way of 
of being in the world. It means we vote according to the character and virtues of the true king, not a political party. According to who we are in relationship to. And so look in the mirror whenever you react on Twitter. Look in the mirror whenever you look at a child who has maybe done the most incompetent thing for the 14th time in the day. Look in the mirror when your roommate has refused to clean their dishes after they have made lasagna and there's ricotta cheese plastered on there with spaghetti sauce and parsley sandpaper gritted to the plate, and they haven't pre-rinsed it. Look in the mirror and say, are my actions and instincts reflecting love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is that my character? Or does it reflect something else? And in order to get back to that, to be those type of people who reflect love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, what do we need? We need to remember who we belong to. We need to remember our story. And it ends what we were talking about today, our verses. It says that they, that you should be mine. That was his purpose. That they would belong to God. Be holy. And I have chosen you and separated you. Why? So that you would be mine. That you would belong to the Holy One. So who are you? Who are you? I'm reminded of this every time I watch Toy Story. Okay? So toys, they come alive when the kid isn't in the room. It sounds like a horror film. But trust me, it's really great. Anyway, so whenever these, store, these toys, especially Woody the Cowboy, needed strength, courage, bravery, to face whatever was keeping them from home, they only needed to, he only needed to look down at his boot. And what would he see? He would see the name of his owner, his kid, Candy, with a backwards end. And he would know who he belonged to, and that would empower the action of the choice to overcome any antagonist. You see, you and I, we need to know who we belong to in order that we may live lives of character, in order that we may vote and love our neighbor. And when that's the ultimate priority of our identity, then it doesn't matter who is elected on November 3rd. We can have stability and hope. We can be anchored. You see, God has written His name on you. He's written His love on you. And it is signed and sealed in this meal. Remember, you're to be holy as He is holy because you are His. The love of Christ is what's going to constrain us. And in the end, our votes won't defend us, nor will they end us. November 3rd isn't the beginning nor the end of anything too big. You are not determined by the person you vote for or the person who is elected, but rather for the God who, by the God who elected you. Choose wisely when you vote. But remember, it's not your ultimate destiny. It's not your king. Only Jesus is. Because he constrained himself to love. Love of you when he took the cup of wrath so you can have the cup of true freedom. Remember, he put himself under constraint for the sake of his neighbor and enemy. 
He lost his freedom so you can be free to give yourself for your neighbor and find true freedom and true humanity. He humbled himself, taking on the form of a servant. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was made to be sin for our sake, so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. He took on the death. He took on death. The, the death that we all deserve. He rose again and has ascended to the throne and will come again to judge the living and the dead and His kingdom will have no end. He will wipe away every tear and it will make all things new. November 3rd isn't the ultimate destiny. Yeah, we're choose wisely. Demonstrate your true hope and vote for the love of your neighbor. Almighty and gracious God, I pray now that you would make the words, the words of your gospel, true in our hearts, that we may be transformed by it to be more like you, and that we may love you and love neighbor. Lord, now meet us in this meal so that we would know your love and know who we belong to, and that we would take that out in power to love and serve even those on the other side of the political aisle. Lord, thank you for your word. Feed us now and stay in your temple. Bless me. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. During this time, we've been affirming our common faith through some of the just the basic creeds and catechism questions. And the one that we have today is uh, the Apostles' Creed, which is a creed that was from our from old baptism rites back in the 200s, so second and third century actually, is where this came from. In this creed, what is beautiful about baptism, baptism is the sign saying who you belong to. That you belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. That you are His, you are His child, you are covered. He has extended His grace to you. You are part of His visible body. And so let us affirm our common faith in the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, He rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.